Hello, hello. Welcome to an episode of P2 Podcast Blues. I am your host, Hudson Ranny. My label is out. This will be considered a bonus interview. But um, I have a very special guest. Um, this is my, actually our first call-in episode. Um, Michael Lindsay Hogg isn't calling in. Um, I'm like this, our guest, um, who's he's interviewed actually many times. Um, he's the author of the 1997 biography Dylan and the author hello, hello, of hello. Let It Be um, of the 33 and a Third series, and he's a very critically acclaimed music journalist. Steve, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you? Thanks for having me. I'm doing great. Um, h- how's the weather in New York? Um, not too bad today. Um, it's uh, sort of sunny. It's not too hot. Um, it's a, it's a nice, sunny August, uh, summer day. <laughs> yeah, it's better than, um, you know, pouring rain. Yes, and where I live, I'm out, um, in the, in the, the suburbs, and don't hold that against me. So it's where I am, I know people here in New York and they think skyscrapers, but I'm looking out at nothing but lush trees and green right now. Yeah, it's like Vermont. I don't know if I'd go that far. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's actually people, so. So, um, I want to dive right in. Um, obviously, we did lose Charlie Watts. We had pretty big major passings last week. Well, actually, three. Um, Tom T. Hall, Charlie Watts, and Don Everly. Right. And Lee Scratch Perry, the famous uh, reggae re- uh, record producer, died oh either yesterday or the day before, so it's sort of another giant in his field. I, and unfortunately, like, I feel like we're getting closer and closer to losing them all, unfortunately. I mean, who's left for 50s icons? Right. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, as far as Don Everly, I mean, yeah, he started in the 50s. So, you know, the folks from that era, I mean... There aren't that many. I mean, the Everly Brothers, I mean, obviously they started out, they were really young, they were kids, you know. But I mean, you know, Jerry Lee Lewis is still alive, of like the 50s, you know, rockers. Um, but yeah, there's not, not too many of them left, and especially since they led such wild lives. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah. So, back, I want to start with some Dylan opinionated questions. Steve? Okay. What is your favorite Bob Dylan album? It's probably Blonde on Blonde. I mean, I think that period there when he does those three albums, um, you know, are just like, you know, Highway 61 revisited, bringing it all back home, and um, Blonde on Blonde. Um, I mean, I, I don't know if that's the exact order. Blonde on Blonde is the last one in 66, and the other two came out in 65. But I mean, I think that that's sort of his peak. I mean, some people will say maybe Blood on the Tracks, which is, you know, certainly another one that you can put up at the top. But I think Blonde on Blonde sort of really captures, you know, that moment in the 60s when, I mean, he was sort of at the top of his game. You know, that's such a great year for music. I mean, you get you also get Revolver and Pet Sounds that year. So, um, pretty extraordinary three albums there. <laughs> yeah, 
I would say I'm not the world's biggest blonde on blonde fan. It's not in the, my top five. Okay. My favorite has to be Time Out of Mind. That's a great album. And I mean, I love that, you know, he sort of came back. And, you know, I think that Daniel Lenoir really helped him sort of, you know, get come back and be able to sort of, you know, make a great album. Dylan's not a fan of the recording studio. And I think that's why sometimes some of his albums, you know, they, they don't quite measure up to how good the songs are. But when he is, you know, willing to sort of, you know, work in a studio um, and, and you know, sort of be patient, I think he can make great albums. I interviewed Daniel Lenoir and he said that what he basically did was he had the studio set up in a way that Dylan could just walk in and they could literally hit the record button. So it, it wasn't necessarily a question of taking a lot of extra time. It was more of a question of Daniel setting up, you know, sort of a vibe that was going to work for Dylan, you know. I mean, he cuts so much of what he does basically live or, you know, first takes, second takes. So, um, but yeah, I love, I love uh, Time Out of Mind. I agree. His whole 2000s period is brilliant, I think. Um, something about the, um, especially, I thought the last album was perfect and I, sacrilegious is, as this is, I liked it better than McCartney 3. I mean. Okay, yeah, I, I'll, I'll go with that. I, I, will, I will agree with you. I like McCartney 3 a lot, but I, yeah, I think that that Dylan album is, is probably a better album. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like he was, he literally just pulled that out of his hat right as the pandemic started, but he didn't. Yeah. One more question I want to ask you. Did you get the Uber box set? No, no, I don't. Uh, I don't have that kind of money. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it would be nice to have it. I mean, I'm, I'm a fan of extras, you know, books and posters and trinkets and you know, collectibles and, and everything. But I mean, that's just way out of line. I mean, I don't, I don't have that kind of money. I, I don't have that kind of money to do things that I need to do, <laughs> let alone something you know like that. I mean, if you can afford it, that's great. You know, and or if you're just so hardcore that you have to have it. I mean, I'm sure that if you wait, you know, five years, you can sell it for double or triple what you paid for it. So it is also an investment for some people, I think. But it just seems a little out of control to me. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, but the gnomes, I mean, come on. You can't not want to know. <laughs> So jumping into the Let It Be book, um, so how did you first, like, um, when you were going at, coming out of high school, when did you realize, I want to be a music journalist? Like, this is my thing. Well, I think the way that it worked for me was even before high school, you know, I'm talking like junior high school or middle school or whatever it's called these days. I mean, I was just really into music. I mean, it was just, it was at a time when, you know, FM radio was still FM radio. It was still underground, progressive radio. You know, I'm talking like um, late 60s now. Yeah. So um, underground FM kind of started around 66 in San Francisco. And then, 
you know, by 67 was also here in New York. There were several stations like WNWFM and WORFM. And so I came to it a little bit later than that. But I mean, I can remember getting my first stereo and they were playing the brand new concert for Bangladesh album. So I was really more into, I want to be that guy on the radio playing the cool records and interviewing musicians and, you know, talking about music. That's what I wanted to do. But in middle school, I also, and I, you know, I don't know where this comes from. I wrote a few articles for the, you know, for the school newspaper. You know, I can, I can distinctly remember the first review that I wrote was uh, the Allman Brothers Live at the Fillmore East album. So, and then I, I sort of, you know, I, I didn't do it regularly. And then I did, I did do it again, like in high school. And then my intention was to, to be on the radio, to, to, to be, you know, on, on WNWFM, to be Scott Muni, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, um, but, but I also was interested in, in writing, you know, because I was reading Rolling Stone and, you know, Cream and Crawdaddy and, you know, all of that stuff. And so I started, I started writing for the, for the school newspaper, for my college newspaper. And then the, you know, the idea was, well, I don't, this, this FM radio thing is, is, is fading away. It's just becoming very corporate. And so there's really no place for me there. So I'll write about music. And then that gave me the flexibility too, where I didn't have to sort of put all my career eggs in one basket. I could always write on the side. I could always, you know, have the boring straight job and then, you know, write on the side. You know, that was sort of like, you know, I was, fortunately I was smart enough to be practical at such a young age and come up with that plan. So, um, but it was really more about the music. I mean, there is an attraction to being a writer, you know, but I, I wasn't a um, natural writer. I think it really was more about my interest in music. And I was always a fan of reading liner notes. Um, you know, like, it was just fascinating to me, like, you know, how are these things made, you know, and you'd read liner notes and it would have, you know, producer and engineer and, you know, the recording studio and, you know, I can remember, you know, reading the liner notes to the Imagine album and that circular, those circular liner notes and reading about all these people, you know, who are all these people, you know, Phil Spector and Klaus Vorman and these names of these recording studios became like, these places became like Mecca, you know, like these places are like, must be the most amazing places in the world, you know? And, uh, you know, I remember reading the liner notes to the Elton John albums because he worked with all these incredible people, you know, Gus Dudgeon was his producer and, um, you know, they recorded at this, this studio in France and I couldn't pronounce the name of it, obviously, because, you know, I didn't speak French, but it's the famous Hunky Chateau. That's where the title of the album comes from. So, you know, you're just fascinated by this world of, of you know, how music is made and who these people are. And, um, you know, it was at a time when, you know, music journalism was kind of an important thing. I mean, I don't think it really is anymore, you know, in terms of the music world. It really just isn't. It's just not the case. No. So, um, so that's, you know, that's the sh sort of the short version of, of, of my sort of, 
you know, amateur years, so to speak. When, what was, do you remember, like, when, when you went to write this book, um, I know you interviewed a lot of really amazing people, um, do you, would you mind giving us a list of who you've interviewed? Sure, sure. I mean, you know, obviously I didn't interview any of the Beatles. I mean, I didn't even try. Um, you know, I really didn't try to reach out to Apple. Um, I, I just felt that that's just a waste of time. I, I kind of knew that, you know, they're, they're not really going to cooperate with people. Um, you know, they're protecting, the, they're protecting their intellectual property or whatever you want to call it. So I never really pursued that, but I was able to talk to people that were either, you know, right there or were sort of around um, or could, you know, lend some sort of context. So, you know, I was able to interview Michael Lindsay Hogg, who you mentioned before, who obviously directed the Let It Be film. And um, Michael's just just a sweetheart of a guy. He's just such a, he's such a nice guy. He's so unassuming and he really is extremely talented and so influential. I mean, he did so much more. I mean, he did the Rock and Roll Circus. He did Brides Had Revisited. Uh, he, early on, he worked on Ready, Steady, Go, I believe. Yeah. Um, you know, he's a painter. Um, he's just a fascinating, creative individual. He's just truly a, a unique man. There, there are people who, you know, they're just musicians or they're just actors or they're just this or they're just that. And then there are people who are just one of a kind. You know, and Michael is truly one of a kind, and he's not a self-promoter. Um, he's just—he's amazing. So, and I was able to interview Peter Asher, um, you know, who's another person who's just—he's so generous and so gracious, and so willing to speak. And he has—he's—he's he's, he's very fond of sort of where he comes from, and he's still keeping the flame alive. You know, and obviously he's gone on to be, you know. A, this esteemed record producer producing Linda Ronstadt and James Taylor and 10,000 Maniacs. And I mean, he's so talented. He's just multi-talented person, you know? Yeah. Um, I interviewed Alan Parsons, you know, I'll oh, do my, uh, I'll do my Dr. Evil impersonation, Alan Parsons. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> you know, and he, you know, Alan was there at Let It Be. He was a kid engineer just starting out. You know, so he he has a very unique perspective on it, and obviously he went on to be this extraordinary record producer. I mean, he produced Dark Side of the Moon. I mean, do you have to do anything else after you do that? Yeah. But I mean, he produced a lot of people. He produced Al Stewart, and you know, obviously formed the Alan Parsons Project. <laughs> and um, you know, so he's an interesting guy. And um, I talked to Klaus Warman, which is you know, Klaus is one of those people that it's like. When you talk to him, it's like you forget sort of who he is in terms of his relationship with the Beatles and the fact that, you know, he was at Manfred Mann and he's a musician outside of working with the Beatles, you know, a solo artist. I mean, the song You're So Vain by Carly Simon, that famous bass part in the middle of the song, that's Klaus. Yeah. And he came up with that. He was in the... Carly Simon told me the story, I've interviewed her a couple of times, is she walked into the studio and Klaus was warming up. And that's how he would warm up, by making, that was one of the things he did, making that sound. And Carly was like, what are you doing? Stop. We have to record that. That's perfect. <laughs> and that became the beginning of the song. 
you know. So, but what happens is when you talk to Klaus, you forget about who he is, and you're just engaged with this person who, there, he, there's this inner calm about him. There's this creativity, there's this honesty that is just, you're so drawn to him as a person. Like you just, it doesn't matter that he, that he hung out in Hamburg with the Beatles and that he's, you know, on the Imagine album and, you, you know, you just don't care. It's just, he's this just truly beautiful soul. And um, I, I've had a couple of encounters with him and he's just, he's extraordinary. He's one of the most extraordinary people I've ever met in my life. You know, so, um, and I interviewed a lot of other people that worked on the film. Um, I interviewed one of these um, recording engineers that worked at Abbey Road that was there the day the Beatles turned up for their audition. Wow. And he, he said, you know, they showed up, he said, and their equipment was like literally scotch taped together, you know, their, their gear and stuff. And, um, you know, it's just... I, I just you just feel so lucky, you know, to, to have had the opportunity to talk to these people, to interview them, and in some cases meet them. And um, you know, the, the, I think the people that worked with the Beatles, in whatever capacity it was, they sort of they sort of take that and they take it through their life with them. Not not as like you know, well, I worked with the Beatles. It, it's it's more of a question of they feel blessed. They feel this grace is with them. You know, because they were there and they had this, they had this interaction with them. And um, I don't, it's, it's fascinating, you know. There's so many people that worked with the Beatles and then they went on and they just did, you know, they did so many other things, you know. Um, so I know there's other people that I, that I interviewed and I just, I can't remember, I can't remember them. I talked to Peter Brown, who I know some people, you know, have some issues with his book. Um, but I mean, he was there, <laughs> there's no question about it. He was there for a lot of it. He's actually the, the reason why John and Yoko ended up living at the Dakota. Yeah. Because I interviewed him where he lives in Manhattan and it's in the next building next to the Dakota. And when John and Yoko were visiting him at one point and looking to, to move to Manhattan permanently, they asked him if they, he had any ideas or they liked his building. He said, well, I don't think there's any um, vacancies here, but the building next door, the Dakota, I think they have some vacancies over there. And so that's how John and Yoko, um, that's how they ended up um, over there. So, but um, I know I'm missing names and pe people, you know. I mean, I did, the book came out in 2004. So uh, it's still in print. Um, I still get royalties, uh, which is always nice. Uh, it's been translated into uh, Japanese uh, and Italian. Um, and it's been anthologized. And um, it was actually um, the Abbey Road bookstore uh, was actually selling it as part of the commemorating the 50th anniversary of the release of the album, which is pretty cool because they don't really sell many books through the through their store you know they really it's not something they really do so someone got tipped off to it and liked it um so it's you know that book is is really stayed with me for a long time people seem to like it i i know that it's not perfect i know that there are many other better many many 
many Beatle books that are much better and much more thorough. Um, but the series is, people seem to like that 33 and a third series, you know, because it covers one album. And every book is sort of different, you know. I mean, there's people that have even written, like, literally, like, wrote fiction, you know, <laughs> as a way to, to sort of talk about the album. I mean, I, I know that's kind of an interesting filter to kind of see it through. But what I tried to do with the book is I felt that Let It Be was very much a documentary. And so the sort of style of the book is, it's like documentary style. It's, it's very much straight journalism. It's not a lot of opinion, you know. It really is like, you know, I just, I kind of take the information and just put it out there. Um, I don't think it's anywhere near the definitive book on Let It Be. I think Doug Selby's books, um, the different forms that they've taken, I think his books really are, those are the sort of best books on Let It Be. Um, I know there's different titles. I think, I think that he published it and then it was published through St. Martin's, I believe. And um, I think one of the books is called um, Drugs, Divorce, and a Slipping Image or something. I always forget. I mean, this is so many years ago. I don't, I don't even know if those books are still in print. That sounds right. Um, I don't think they are in print. Yeah, I mean, I've never met Doug. I've never had any interaction with him. I don't know if he's aware of my book. I don't know what his status is, if he still writes about music or the Beatles or whatever. But, I mean, you know, his books are sort of indispensable if you want to really dive deep into Let It Be. I'll have to check those out, because um, I think I went to go get them, and they were, it was one of those, like, they're 60 bucks on Amazon. Right. Yeah, you could probably find a paperback of the St. Martin's version, I would imagine, at affordable prices. But anybody who's interested in Let It Be, or anybody who's interested in The Beatles, I would highly recommend those books. With the Let It Be album, um, do you how do you remember when this came out at all? Like, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I do. Um, I, it's, this is a funny story, is... Um, you know, I'm, I'm still pretty young at this point, you know, I'm not, not in my teenage years, let's put it that way, I'm still pretty young. So you, you have this, this sort of, um, knowledge of what's going on around you in terms of music or understanding that is very sort of, it's very peripheral, you know, it's, it's, you know, it isn't that deep, you know what I'm saying? But yeah. I distinctly remember, I had a, a friend who we were both sort of the guys who, all we did was listen to records and buy records and figure out ways to buy more records. You sound and, like me. <laughs> and, and quote, unquote, borrow records from people. <laughs> and then liberate those records from those people, you know, him more than me. And I distinctly remember one day, his mother was, I think it was his mother, was giving him a ride to my house. Uh, I mean, he could walk to my house, but it was, you know, far enough where a ride would be nice and I distinctly remember him getting out of the car and saying you know yeah I got the Let It Be album and it's the last album they're going to do the Beatles have broken up and I'm like oh that's a bummer <laughs> you know but I mean again you're sort of like you just you know it's it, 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 it doesn't loom as large because of the age that you are and you know, you just, you don't really have the context for, you know, what does this mean? You know, this group broke up. Like, what does that mean? <laughs> you 
You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you don't have a you don't have a sense of it. So I remember, you know, we played the album a lot, and you know, and I loved it. I loved it. I loved the album. I mean, you know, this Let It Be, Two of Us, The Long and Winding Road, Get Back. I mean, you know. Those are those are great songs. Those are those songs are kind of a big deal, you know. I mean, everybody says that it's the weakest Beatles album. Um, oh, I disagree with that. What is the weakest Beatles album? I mean, you know, I mean, are we talking about the the very specific UK albums? Yes. And or the Capital albums? Just the UK what? albums. Okay. I mean, I think that. Obviously, I mean, Yellow Submarine only has four, you know, Beatles songs on it, technically. Yeah. So, I think you probably, just simply because of the number of Beatles songs on it, I think that would have to be considered the weakest one, you know? Um, I mean, I do love the, the first few albums, you know, Please Please Me and, you know, With the Beatles. Um, but... Overall, they're, they're, they're somewhat weak, only in that there's so many covers on it. You yeah. know, there's so many cover songs. I mean, I prefer I prefer the Beatles doing their own compositions, said Captain Obvious, you know. Um, so, I mean, you know, it's funny. I know a lot of people don't like Beatles for sale. I think it's actually a somewhat underrated album. Oh, I would agree. Ways, you know? So, um, you know, I don't like to play the, you know, what's the worst Beatles album game, because I love all those albums, and they all, I, I would not want to give up any of the, of the albums, they all mean something. And I think we all go through different phases where I think we, we are attracted to certain albums or certain periods, and then we, we go into others. You know, I think that, I think that for people of a certain age, I think we sort of, it was kind of all about, you know, really very much sort of, you know, Sgt. Pepper, you know, Magical Mystery Tour, the White Album, you know, and Abbey Road. You know what I mean? I yeah. think it became a lot of that. And then I think as some of us of a certain age got older, I think we sort of went back to the to the sort of, you know, the Beatlemania stuff, to the sort of pop, you know, mid, mid-60s kind of pop stuff. And sort of fell in love with that music, you know, all over again. You know what I'm saying? From when we were kids. I mean, obviously, when we were little children, you know, it was, you know, it was, I want to hold your hand, and she loves you. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, I'm a little too young to to really have been, to been really plugged in to the to the, the first flush of Beatlemania. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I think if you're a teenager at that point, or you're like 12 years old at that point, I think it's, you know, it really hits you straight in the heart. But, um, so, you know, I, I, I think you go through different periods. I would agree. Um, so you were, yeah. Um, and I find that way with the solo music. I mean, some days I'm craving to listen to London Town. Some days I am craving to listening to listen to wildlife. It all goes through different phases. Okay. So, back to Let It Be. What What do you think of Let It Be Naked? Well, I, I'm glad that they did it. Um, you know, I think it's interesting to listen to it the way it's done. I mean, it, it is. it does flow. It does feel more like an album in some ways. 
you know, a conventional album. And it does sound a lot cleaner and clearer, you know, you know what I mean? So it's, it's nice to have it. To me, it doesn't replace the original Let It Be album. I agree. Um, I think that it was a real missed opportunity in terms of the way that, that they did that bonus disc with all those little snippets. I, mean, I don't know what that was. Yeah. I, I don't know whose idea that was. I hate to say it, you know. Um, you know, it's interesting. The, um, the vinyl version of that um, is quite a collector's item for some reason, you know. Yeah. And I think it's because a certain amount of it is in mono. And um, I guess they didn't print that many, and it went out of it went out of print fast, you know. So, you know, we're hoping that with this new one, you know, that it, what we were hoping that it would rectify some of the faults of the, um, you know, let it be naked. And I think that they have done that in some cases from the information that we have so far. But I still don't quite understand why they're not giving us the entire rooftop concert. I don't, I don't quite understand that. And I also don't understand what this idea is of including an EP. In That's there. so stupid. You know, I mean, EPs kind of, you know, the Beatles. I, I guess Magical Mystery Tour was, was the last EP that the Beatles did in England. Yeah. Um, you know, by by '66 or even, you know, I would say maybe even '65. So EPs kind of became, you know, in England, obviously, because we don't, they don't really do them in America, and had really kind of faded away, you know. Um, and, you know, Capital just, uh, Parlophone just kind of stopped doing it, or EMI kind of just at one point just stopped doing um, EPs altogether, you know. I mean, once, once the Beatles did Sgt. Pepper, I mean, that forget about it. No one's going to listen to EPs anymore. No. It's not going to happen. You know, I think EPs were a good thing because it was for people who lived in England who who wanted more than just a single but maybe didn't want to buy an album. They gave good value uh, and they were pretty to have. You know, there were these beautiful, you know, these art objects uh, and they, they obviously had a very sort of hot sound to them. Yeah. You know, um, and I have some, I own some, not many because they're, they're expensive. Um, but I think that what they should have done is, okay, you want to do an EP? Well, first of all, you only put it in the, in the vinyl package and make it look like an EP. It should be, if it's four songs, then it should be on a seven inch, you know, um, record with a nice glossy cover, a cool cover, come up with something interesting. And, um, you know, it's, it's easy, it's, it's easy to sort of, you know, to second guess this stuff. I mean, I mean, this is kind of the parlor game that, you know, Beatle people like to play with these reissues. I think that, I think starting with, I mean, probably Sergeant Pepper, um, I think that, you know, Capital Universal or whatever conglomerate owns them, uh, they've been doing a really good job with these reissues. You know I agree. I, mean? I think they, I think they've been really well done. I mean, some better than others. You know, would I have done some differently? Yes. Uh, are some a little pricey? Yes. Um, but I think that I think that they they they've really hit their stride now. They, they, you know, Capital for the longest time had done sort of a really poor job of reissuing, you know, the Beatles. Let's face it. Let's be honest. Okay. But I think that it's you know I think what they've been doing, you know, the Sgt. Pepper, the, the package that they did, and, and the the double vinyl, which is another one that's expensive and out of print that you should 
get if you don't have. Um, you know, obviously with um, the way they did the White Album, uh, the way they did Abbey Road, um, you know, it, they've been doing a good job. You know, it's, they've been they've been they've been really good. The Magical Mystery Tour, the way that they did it with the um, with the Blu-ray and the DVD and the double vinyl in a package. I mean, that's a really that's a really cool set to have. You know, um, you know, I think I think they I think they've done a good job. You know, so. I don't know. Some people have speculated that they're going to they'll do some other kind of thing, um, and they will include the whole rooftop concert afterwards or something. Um, I see now that they're. It looks like they're going to release some kind of single in advance of Let It Be and uh, You Know My Name. Look up the number, which looks to me like what Harrison, uh, the Harrison Estate did, where they put out. Um, was it? I forget. Now was it? My Sweet Water, isn't it a pity? They put it out as a single in advance of the box set. They did that for, for Record Store Day. For Record Store Day, right. So it looks like they're just they're going to do that, I assume, in advance. I, I, this was just breaking yesterday, I think. So, um, so you know, that's nice. Um, that's nice to have. Um, you know, look, I think that overall... People are getting a lot of joy from these reissues. I mean, I know some of us are, you know, you know, can afford it or not. Some of us who are you know, write about music, and sometimes we get you know, promo copies from record companies. Uh, so it's a little harder for me to judge sometimes. If you're on a budget and you really want these things, it can be a challenge. But I think that, for the most part, people are really getting a lot of enjoyment out of these packages because we're getting all of this extra music, that I know for some people who are bootleg collectors, some of it has already been out there. But, you know, there are these beautiful packages, and there's a lot of pictures, and there's a lot to read. And, you know, so, I mean, I, I, the more the merrier. They can just keep reissuing this stuff forever, as far as I'm concerned. I love it. So, if, if they reissued a new issue of Let It Be every year, a different 12 different colored vinyl... <laughs> Would you well, buy them? I don't know about that. <laughs> See, that's a different kind of thing. I yeah. think when you start getting into into a lot of editions and colored vinyl and Target exclusives and, you know, uh, Carvel exclusives, it gets like, I think it gets a little weird. Look, I think for some people, this stuff is just, there are collectors and it's a lot of fun. And, you know, look, life is hard. Let's face it, the last few years, you know, what we've had to live through with COVID and you know, with dictator Trump running the country. Thank you. Years. Yes, we agree. <laughs> I, I, I think that, you know, it's, it's, you know, hurricanes and, you know, global warming and, you know, life's tough. Let's face it, wars and, you know, it's like this, this, this gives people joy. You know, this, this, it becomes joyful. And I think, I think, you know, you have young people who are discovering this stuff for the first time. And then you have older people who it's 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 nostalgia and it gets you get to relive memories and um you know i know nostalgia is a bad word sometimes which i never quite understand like you know why is that a bad thing i don't understand that either i mean you don't want to live in the past you know you don't want to be stuck in the past i don't think that's a good thing but i think that it can be it's very joyful but you know the beatles to me you know the overall there's joy. There's so much joy there. You know what I mean? They, yeah. 
it created so much, you know, George Harrison said, you know, the, the, the Beatles, what did he say? The Beatles saved everybody from boredom. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And I mean, coming from George Harrison, who, you know, has a lot of issues with the Beatles, he once said that being an ex-Beatle is like the equivalent of being an ex-Nazi. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it's like, so, you know, um, it's, there's so much joy there. You know, it's the, when you listen to the music, it's just such happiness, you know? And so it's, it's a good, I mean, look, they stood for peace and love and joy and music. I mean, that's what they stood for. I mean, you know, there's, there's controversy in some songs and some of the things that they did. But I think overall, it was like, you know, they just, you know, what is it about these guys? They just created such joy. They made people so happy. You know, and here we are all these years later. I mean, it's like it's going to be 60 years, you know, that from, from when they started. And we're still listening to them and we're still talking about them and their albums still sell and hit the charts. Yeah, I mean, I think Abbey Road was the best selling album of the um, 20th, the 20 of the 2010 decade or something. That yeah. Whole, yeah. And on vinyl, I believe it is. Yeah, yeah. as it Abbey should Road, be. I think it is. I think it's Abbey Road, yeah. Then one wasn't far behind it. And I'm not a big fan of one, so I don't, uh, because I don't think it's right. a complete compilation. Cause I, right. I don't think right. I, I... I like the one, I like the package that comes with the Blu-ray. What was that, you know, one plus? The videos, you know, I think I like that. And I do like the way that they, one of the vinyl issues with the way they did the photography and all the singles covers and the, the, the Richard Abaddon portraits. I mean, it is a beautiful thing as an object. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It is something you want to own, you know, if you're a Beatles fan. Yeah. Um, now, in the book you mention a DVD reissue of Let It Be. Um, right. Could you uh, walk us through what what you think happened through that and kind of talk about it, if you don't mind? Sure. Well, I think, you know, Michael Lindsay Hogg had told me that they interviewed him for a DVD reissue, you know, for the, you know, some extra bonus stuff. And for whatever reason, it, you know, it never came out. I mean, I think it's just one of those things that just, it kind of continued to just keep putting on, getting put on the back burner, you know? I mean, it's, it's just, I don't know, they, you know, they put out Let It Be Naked. I mean, that would have been the right time to sort of to sort of do it at that point. You know what I mean? Like, it's, yeah. it's, I don't quite understand that. Like, that would have been the moment to say, okay. You know, I know that they all had, and they all had problems with it. And at, at, at that point, you know, um, obviously John had been gone for many years, and George had passed away at that point and I think that that was part of the stumbling block because I think George Harrison really wanted nothing to do with it and didn't want them to put it out and you know obviously and I talk about this in the book you know whoever whoever idea it was to finally go and get the tapes back from the bootleggers <laughs> you know not that they didn't have the original tapes but um you know, that was a real sign of, like, we're going to grab control of this thing, you know? And it's just one of those things that just it just kept getting put on the back burner. I just think there were so many other things that they just felt more positive about reissuing, either 
whether it was Beatles or solo Beatles, you know, whether it was albums or films or what, you know, whatever it was. But um, I don't know. And it's so, it's so like, um, it's so like science fiction, how like every time we get close to them putting this thing out, something else happens, you know, the pandemic happens, you know, I mean, it's just like people are just are desperate to see this thing, you know? I mean, and it's like, I think there's just a lot of people who just, regardless of what what the sort of critical analysis is of Let It Be as a film in that period, is it's just been this thing that it's never been put out on DVD, you know? It's never been put out on Blu-ray, you know? Um, I mean, I have a VH, my VHS copy of it, you know? Um, <laughs> It's, I don't know, it's, it's, it's hard to tell, like, who's making the decisions, and why, and, I don't know, it's, I mean, they probably reached a certain, there were probably certain points where they were thinking of, okay, do we put out Let It Be, or do we put out this, and they were like, well, we should do Let It Be when there's an anniversary, okay, so, 2010 would have been the last time they could have considered doing it you know what i mean yeah so why did it not happen then that would have been that would have been the next time after when it was supposed to come out the first time i know that makes almost no sense what yeah but um for whatever reason they didn't do it so what was happening at that time i mean i don't remember what was, what were they reissuing in 2010 they don't remember well the beatles they, box set had just came out 2009 right so that's probably that's probably what prevented it from happening because they probably figured people had just spent a fortune on that box set, the stereo box set. Um, and so, um, you know, I don't know. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's hard. It's hard to keep track of this stuff. I know the, you know, the, when they did the, the, the Beatles mono box set on in vinyl and then they, and they also issued them separately. You could buy those separately, which was really a, a nice thing to do. You know, that to me was, that, that's an extraordinary thing that they had done, where you finally had the Beatles UK albums in mono from the original analog tapes on vinyl. Yeah. I mean, to me, that's, that's the most valuable thing there is to have, you know, because that's how they were intended. When they mixed those albums, they, the primary intention was for them to be in mono. Did they do stereo versions? Yes. Did Capital do their fake stereo versions? Yes. But, um, you know, those, those, the original mono albums. And some people, you know, will argue that with certain, certain issues of the Beatles UK albums in stereo, that they like some of them, whether it's A Hard Day's Night or, you know, whatever the case may be. Or some people do like the, do like the the U.S. Capitol Rubber Soul, um, the way that the the way that it's tracked. I agree. Those, I'm one of know, those because people. Because it's like a folk rock album. You know, some people do like that, and we you know we can discuss this all day. But um, here's the thing: it's it's all going to come out in the fall, or most of it will anyway. <laughs> so we're all going to be able to you know hear it, see it, you know, read it, you know. Um, look at the pictures, and you know th those photographs are iconic photographs. I interviewed Ethan Russell 
Um, but I didn't interview him for my book. He wouldn't talk to me for my book because he doesn't own those pictures. Um, Apple owns those pictures. But then I did interview him later when he put out one of his photo books. And um, Ethan Russell is the only photographer to have done a cover of a Beatles album, a Rolling Stones album, and a Who album. He's the only person who has that distinction, which is fascinating. Yeah. His book, Dear Mr. Fantasy, um, which is out of print because he doesn't own the rights to the Let It Be stuff, that's a great book to get your hands on. Um, it's great visually because of all the amazing album covers that he did and, and photographs, but it's a great story too. His story is a, it's really a great story. I'm going to have to check that out then. Yes. I think you've just added like 70,000 books for me to go buy after. <laughs> yeah, that's what I do. I love music books. I, I do music. too. Yeah, I have like 200 plus books on the Beatles, which compared to some collectors is probably not much. <laughs> I'm looking at my measly 25, so. Well, you're young. You have a long way. I've been doing this for a long time, you know. But the last month, every my, I get like I'll... IPG will just send me a truckload of books, and it's like, and I don't even know. So it's like, oh, well, th that keeps me busy for the for a couple days. There you go. Yeah. Um. Now I know you've mentioned. Now, are you reviewing the set for the Vinyl Districts, the Get Back set? Probably. Yeah, I'll probably do it for them. And does um does Apple send you a physical copy, or is it all MP3s? I get physical copies that come from various people. Like in some cases, it comes directly from Universal Music. From the, from the, you know, that's the record label that you know distributes it. Okay, so they'll send it to me, um, or it will come from an independent publicist. Like in the case of Harrison, I believe there's an in the, his estate has an independent publicist, independent from the label. Um, so that's generally how it works. The stuff does not come from Apple. Yeah. But I, in some cases, they, they, you know, at different times, they don't have enough product to send, or they'll only send the, you know, two CD version, or, you know, I mean, it, it, all, it all depends. What I generally will do is, for some of these recent sets, um, like a lot of times the label or the, you know, the publicist will say, well, we can send you one one of the two sets, you know, the big ones, which one do you want? And then I will buy the other one because I want to have it. Yeah. Um, what was the first set that you remember getting early and what was like the, what was your reaction? Were you like, oh my gosh, like, were you like a little kid on Christmas? Do you mean once they started reissuing the Beatles music? Like, yeah, like, that you reviewed. Okay. Well, I remember when, um, geez, I mean, I, I, I think I received, like, as a journalist, the, the um, rarities as a, as a promo, as a vinyl promo. I'm pretty sure, okay? I think I also was able to get the, um, that, that Beatles at the movies, set which most people don't really like but it's a nice package to have yeah i love I that I, cover yeah i think i got that as a promo i think those came out 
before the 87 CDs, but don't quote me on that. <laughs> but I do remember getting the CDs when they first came out as promos and I wrote about them. And, you know, that was great. I mean, in retrospect, I don't know if I'm really a huge fan of, of, of some of them, because some of them are very well done, you know. Some, and, 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 and have a certain, still, still retain a certain place in the Beatles reissue chronology, okay? Like, I would never throw them away or sell yeah. them or something, <laughs> you know. Um, but, you know, and I remember, you know, like, you know, friends of mine call me up saying, oh, so I talked to so-and-so and I heard you got the Beatles CDs. I'm coming over, <laughs> you know. And I think that, I think what was great about that was when you listen to the, the early albums, it was sort of like, you know, because I'm of a certain age, I think that I didn't know those albums as well. So it was it was definitely a revelation hearing those early albums, you know. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, we can discuss the, the merits of the, of the way that they did it or the, the sound quality or... I know that I think it was George Martin went back and I think it was... Was it Help and Rubber Soul? I always forget which two albums. There were two... I'm pretty sure it's Help and Rubber Soul. He remixed them. Yeah, there were remixes. And then, which people didn't really like. They didn't like the way that he did it. Um, but then they put the original versions back on that are there in the stereo versions in the mono box, in this mono CD box, if I'm not mistaken. I think I have this straight. Yeah, that sounds right. Right. Because people didn't like the way he kind of used it. It was almost like a digital sort of reverb at the time. So people didn't really like the way he did those. And they were, you know, they were stereo. So if you have the mono CD box, then they give you the um, the original mixes, the original stereo mixes, not the, not the George Martin remixes. Yeah. So it's hard to retain all this information. There, there are people, obviously, and you've interviewed some of these people on your show. Yeah. <laughs> who know this stuff like... It's just, it's incredible. It's a, you know, you've had Tom Yachty on your show, right? Yeah, that, that man it, scares me. I mean, he is like, you know, I, I, I just, I worship these people because of what they know. I love talking to these people because I know nothing compared to them. I mean, I'm a student of the Beatles. These people, they are the professors. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like Mark Lewis, and like I've interviewed Mark several times and I've met Mark. God bless Mark Lewis. He should be knighted, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I mean, I'm not. I'm not joking either. I'm dead serious. They need to knight him. He needs a knighthood. I mean, he is just extraordinary, and just the loveliest man. He's just absolutely the loveliest man there is. And Bruce Spicer is another person. His knowledge, his passion, and he's 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 just he's just again just just a lovely man. He's just just a wonderful person, you know. And I could go on and on and talking about these folks, but I mean, those two in particular, their knowledge is just extraordinary. And I love their books. I mean, I, I read the, the Mark Lewis and Tune In, the, the, the UK edition that did finally get released here. It's 1,600 pages. I read that book. <laughs> and it's just, it's extraordinary. I can't wait for the next volumes. You know, my wish in life is that I live long enough to read the entire 
three-volume set of The History of the Beatles by Mark Lewis. Yeah. You know, my life will be complete. And I'm not joking. I'm, I'm, I'm very serious. I'm worried about Mark Lewis and not living long enough. Well, let's knock on wood here. Yeah. You know, he, I think the way that Mark is doing it right now is he's actually working on the, on the second and third volumes simultaneously. Okay. I mean, they're not going to come, they're not going to be, they're not going to be published simultaneously, but he's working on them together. So I think that will make it be where once we get the second volume, I don't think it will be as long a gap um, like it was between the first and the second volume. We'll get the third volume after the second one and it won't be, it won't be, it won't take as long. So, um, yeah, I don't know what the latest is. I don't think it would come out any sooner than 22 or 23. I, I, I don't think so. Yeah, that's what um, he says on his website. I'm looking right. at it right now. That's what, so. So I, I mean, I would think, I, I would think that we, we we will get it by 24. Yeah, I don't think sooner, unless in, you know something I don't know. In time for me to graduate high school. Okay, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so Steve, this has been a really great interview. Um, so I'm gonna ask you, would. Is there anything else you would like to plug and tell us how we could contact you? Well, I don't have a website, which I know sounds that's like like I, I don't have a mailing address. <laughs> but um, you know, I do. I have a Facebook page. I'm on Facebook. I'm on uh, Instagram. I'm not really on Twitter these days. Um, I, um, my, you know, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, you know, my you can. The Let It Be book is very easy to buy through Amazon. Uh, I was in my local Barnes & Noble the other day, and I saw they had a copy of it, the Let It Be book. Uh, that's part of the 33 and a third series. It's published by Bloomsbury. Um, you know, so um, the, um, the Beatles in Context book that was edited by Ken Womack, I have, a, I have an essay in that book. Um, on the rooftop concert, I believe it is, if I'm not mistaken. It wasn't that long ago, but I can't remember exactly what I wrote. Um, the the Belmo Beatles Christmas book, um, I wrote the, either the preface or the introduction. I forget which one it is. That's a really wonderful book on the Beatles. It is. Um, if, for whoever doesn't know about it. Um, you know, I write regularly now for a few websites. Uh, one is called It's Psychedelic Baby, <laughs> which is a really cool website. It's, um, it comes out of uh, somewhere in Eastern Europe. Um, and then I also write for um, Something Else Reviews. I don't usually cover the Beatles there, though, because Kit O'Toole is sort of the resident Beatles scholar. So um, I, I write for them. And then I am a contributing editor for the Vinyl District, which is something that's fairly new. Um, I covered the George Harrison All Things Must Pass reissue. I covered the 8LP edition and the, I guess it's the 5CD Blu-ray edition, and I sent you a link to that. That was a really great article. Thank you. And I reviewed the, um, the um, what was the other, like, one of the, the um, Plastic Ono band I reviewed. Great set. I reviewed and great the, um, review issue of that, um, the latest Van Morrison album, the latest album from a group called Fleet Foxes, who I don't know if you're familiar with. I'm not familiar um, with them. 
great group, an American group. Um, um, and I know there's other things that I've written for them in my, in my short history working for them. I am currently working on a review of the, a little late, but, but I'm finally getting to it, a review of the Who Sell Out um, reissues. I'm a big Who fan. I used to work for Pete Townsend, as you saw in my bio. Yeah. Um, and um, oh, I reviewed the Joni Mitchell box set for the Vinyl District, which is a review, which is the box of her first four albums. Um, so, you know, I'm out and around. I occasionally turn up on the radio. Um, and, um, you know, trying to get through this pandemic intact. Yeah. And get back out to, you know, regularly going to record stores. I miss going to the Fest for Beatle fans, um, which is which is always so much fun. I've appeared there as an author several times and just gone as a fan. And uh, I remember one of the years I, I, we saw Billy Preston perform, which was just incredible. Um, you know, wow. um, so, um, you know, just want to see things get back to normal. I mean, I think get back is the operative phrase, you know? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, so, uh, you know, get back to where we once belonged. Yeah. Know? which is normal life where you can just get up and go out. You don't have to wear a mask and you don't have to worry about being vaccinated and, and, and all the attendant, you know, controversy and politics attached to it all. Oh. These get, last few years have just been brutal. Thank get, God for the Beatle albums. Yeah. You know? <laughs> get your shots, folks. Get your shots. Yes. I am vaccinated. I recommend people be vaccinated. I, I still wear a mask. I do too. Like when, I, when I go food shopping to places like that, you know, indoor places, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm probably, you know, you know, just being overly cautious sometimes, but I think it's better to be overly cautious and just be respectful of other people, you know, too. Yeah. Um, so, you know, peace and love. Um, let's hope the planet heals. Yeah. The planet is in a bad place right now, you know. I mean, you know, this is something Paul is really big in terms of the environment and climate change. And, you know, I mean, and, you know, Ringo is, is all about peace and love. I mean, this, you know, these messages that the Beatles, you know, focused on, I mean, they're still so relevant and maybe even more relevant than ever, you know. So, um, you know, instant karma is going to get you. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so... Peace and love, and, and you know, Beatles forever, as Nicholas Schaffner once called one of his books. You know. Thank you again, Steve, for coming on the show. Sure, I love being here. Thank you for having me. And you just listened to an episode of I Know I Know, a solo Beatles podcast, where I interviewed Steve Matteo, who did the George Her- the Let It Be Thirty Three in the Third series. Just a reminder: you can send me an email at solobeatlespodcast at gmail.com. I also want to mention that I do have a new radio show called Anytime at All, which can be found on Mixcloud, which is anything Beatles-related, an artist that worked with the Beatles, an artist that was influenced by the Beatles. And um, I'll leave a link for that in the description. So all, please take care. Thank you for listening.